Today's reading is from Deuteronomy. Surprise, surprise. Deuteronomy chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. Hear, Israel, the decrees and the laws I declare in your hearing today. Learn them and be sure to follow them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. It was not with our ancestors that the Lord made this covenant, but with us, with all of us who are alive here today. The Lord spoke to you face to face out of the fire on the mountain. At that time I stood between the Lord and you to declare to you the word of the Lord because you were afraid of the fire and did not go up the mountain. And he said, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day, the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns, so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Honour your father and your mother, as the Lord your God has commanded you, so that you may live long and that it may go well with you in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbour. You shall not covet your neighbour's wife, you shall not set your desire on your neighbor's house or land, his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. These are the commandments the Lord proclaimed in a loud voice to your whole assembly there on the mountain, from out of the fire, the cloud, and the deep darkness. And he added nothing more. Then he wrote them on two stone tablets and gave them to me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Thanks for reading for us, Biff. Uh, my name's Sam. Uh, I'm one of the ministers here, and as part of my uh, ministry, my role here, I'm a chaplain over at Melbourne Uni. Uh, it's a really interesting way and place to do ministry, and every now and again, not, not very often, but every now and again, I get to have the kind of interaction I had uh, with a young woman a few weeks ago that uh, fills me with, with joy. Uh, she reached out to me via email, having grown up in an uh, orthodox uh, faith background, so going to church her whole life, uh, and wanted to ask about what it means to know God and to live for God. She'd been kind of deconstructing her faith and her, her church experience, and she wanted to know what, what does it really look like to know God and to live for him. Uh, we met on campus and, and had a great, a great conversation about who God is and what it looks like to live for him. And I, I asked her in that conversation, I said, what do you think it looks like to live for God? And she, she kind of paused. She wasn't quite sure. Eventually, she answered, to keep the Ten Commandments. It's an interesting answer, isn't it? I, I kind of pushed in a, a little bit to her, her question. Uh, so I asked, you know, is keeping the Ten Commandments the way that we know God, the way that we stay in relationship with him? And she said, yes, I, I think that's the way that we know God and stay in relationship with him. I said to her, I don't think I've kept the Ten Commandments. Do you think you've kept the Ten Commandments? She said, no, I don't think I have kept the Ten Commandments. It's a difficult thing to know what to do with, isn't it, this passage uh, that, we're, that we've just had read this morning, the Ten Commandments, this kind of foundational set of laws that represent more than 600 laws that God gives the nation of Israel uh, as they are called to live for him as his distinctive people in the world. Lots of Christians across history have dealt with the Ten Commandments in different ways. Do we need to keep them? Do we not need to keep them? If not, how should we relate to them? And how should we relate to the law generally, the 600 and more uh, rules that God gives his people as they're about to enter the promised land to form them as his people, as a nation, to tell them how to live for him? And that, that's kind of the question that we're going to think about together this morning. What's the role of the law in the Christian life? When we say the law, we're talking about this collection of instructions for living that God gives his people in the Old Testament before they enter the promised land uh, to live for him there. There's hundreds and hundreds of these rules that make up the law together, but these 10 that we've just heard are, are the, the, the foundational building blocks uh, of the whole law. And this question What's the role of the law in the Christian life? It's a question that, that matters, even though it's a bit of a kind of a theological, intellectual question. It's one that really matters for us. It matters for our, our heads and our hearts and our hands. It matters for our heads because it is an important theological question. Most of the Bible is the Old Testament. The, the books of the law make up a huge part of Scripture as we know it as, as Christians, as God's revelation to us. And so we need to know what to do with those parts of Scripture if we're going to read them and understand them and live them rightly. This question matters for our hearts as well because, like for that young woman that I met at uni, our answer to this question shapes how we expect to relate to God. Do we relate to God by obeying his rules? Or is God like a 
kind of like an inconsistent parent who has given us rules but then doesn't expect us to follow them? Or is there some other way uh, to understand who God is through the law? And this question matters for our hands, for our, our actions, our lives. It shapes what we do in our lives as Christians as we answer this question. Should I follow the Ten Commandments? Should I observe the Sabbath? Should I follow all of the law? Should I abstain from shellfish? It it matters for us as Christians, for our heads and our hearts and our hands, as we answer this question, what's the role of the law in the Christian life? So this passage that we've read comes at a really crucial moment in Israel's history. God's rescued them from Egypt, where they grew from a family into a nation of millions of people. He's brought them out from Pharaoh's rule. He's led them through the desert to Mount Sinai, where he first gave them the law uh, through Moses on stone tablets, that kind of famous story. Immediately, the people have failed to keep the law, honour God, love him. Uh, And so they wander around in the desert for 40 years, for a whole generation. So that's, that's kind of what's behind this passage as they come to now stand on the edge of the promised land that God promised them a generation earlier and they're about to go in. And so Moses is restating this kind of foundational covenant agreement between God and his people as they're about to go into the promised land and become this, this nation under God, this nation representing and reflecting him to the world. So it's a really crucial moment in the whole story of the Bible and really shapes what we read as we know that that's, that's what God is doing this for. He's giving them the law as they enter the land to become this people for him. And so we're going to ask four kind of sequential questions. You can see them printed in your news sheet if you've got one to help us try and understand the role of the law in the Christian life. We're going to be a bit less kind of verse by verse working our way through the passage today and a a bit more thematic as we think about God's heart behind this part of scripture and and how he intends us to understand it. And these four questions will kind of shape our way through. Why did God give the law? What's the heart of God behind the law? How did Jesus fulfill the law? So what is the role of the law in the Christian life? Now the law is a set of rules, right? Instructions for living. And we, we make and we follow rules all the time in our life, every moment of every day. Imagine you are preparing to go on a flight, an aeroplane flight. There's a huge amount of rules and different kinds of rules that you will interact with as you prepare to get on a flight, right? First, There's the rule to arrive at least an hour before a domestic flight or two hours before an international flight, or if you're my parents, at least four hours before either. (laughs) And that's a rule, it's kind of a take it or leave it rule, right? That's that's on you, whether you choose to follow that or not, and whether you follow it or not, you will uh, wear the consequences of that. Then, as you get to the airport, there's more rules that you'll engage with. There's a rule to wait in the queue and not to push forward. It's a different kind of rule, right? It's a rule for for public order. It's making the whole kind of communal operation run smoothly. Then you'll interact with the rule to please pay attention as our cabin crew runs you through the emergency evacuation procedures from this flight. This is kind of a rule. (laughs) 
though one that perhaps we've mutually agreed to just not follow, right? Who, who among us are the, the people pleasers who pay attention just to make sure that the airline attendants don't feel bad, right? Some of us follow that rule, others of us just have our faces in our phones, headphones in. Then you'll interact, maybe, with a rule during your flight, please be seated through turbulence. That's a different kind of rule, right? That's a rule that's it's for your safety, it's for your good. If you don't follow that rule, there might be serious consequences for you. All kinds of different rules for all kinds of different reasons. And we make rules as well, of course, for ourselves, for those we influence in our, our workplaces, our families, our social networks. And we have different rules for different situations. Like you might not share the rule that my household shares, no singing Frozen with a mouthful of food. <laughs> all kinds of rules for all kinds of situations in all kinds of different ways, right? So what are these? What are the Ten Commandments? What's, what's the law? What kind of rules or instructions are these? Why does God give his people this set of ten foundational commands, ten instructions, ten ways to live, and then the hundreds that go along with them? It's, it's really uh, rich and complex. It's not, a, not a, a simple kind of one-point answer. Here's some of the reasons why God gives the law to the nation of Israel. He does it to make his people into a people, into a distinctive nation. Remember, they were slaves in Egypt without their own autonomy, uh, with a repressed culture. He's brought them out into the desert, this kind of in-between space, They've wandered around, not in Egypt, but not yet in the promised land. And now God's bringing them in to the land that he's promised. He's going to make them a light to the Gentiles. He's going to make them the nation under his rule that reflects him to the world. And so the law shows them how to do that, how to be a people that reflect who their God is. In an ancient world where every people group had their own local gods, the one true God is giving his people a distinctive set of ways to live to reflect him to the world so the law is like a it's like a uniform the law shows other people who the jews belong to right like different biker gangs wear different patches to show what gang they belong to this law shows the world who these people belong to god gives them the law as well, to progress his covenant with Israel. This isn't the first covenant, the first agreement that God's made. You might remember back in in Genesis, God made a covenant with Abraham. He promised to bless Abraham. And that was a one-way covenant, God making promises to Abraham. This is a a two-way covenant. God's making promises and calling the people to respond to him in particular ways through the law. God gives the law in order to expose sinful hearts. So we can see this reflecting on the New Testament as it reflects back on the Old. In Romans 3 and in other places, the New Testament talks about God giving the law in order to show people that we can't keep it. And so 
point us to our need for Jesus, the one who can. Augustine uh, explains this. He says, the utility, that means the use of the law is that it convinces man of his weakness and compels him to apply for the medicine of grace, which is in Christ. So God gives the law in his great big plan for the universe to expose sinful hearts and show our need for Jesus. And he gives the law to be the guardian of the people until the coming of Jesus. So we read this in in Galatians that the law is like a a private tutor. Uh, Like a tutor prepares a child for adulthood, the law prepares the people of Israel for the coming of Christ and the fullness that he will bring. The Ten Commandments, are, this is like a wedding ceremony. They're like the vows between God and his people. God is inviting a rescued people into covenant agreement with him, exclusive relationship with him. And this law is like the vows, the terms of that relationship that they both agree to. So the law is not just a list of rules to keep God happy. The law is not the way for that young woman at uni to be right with God. The law, rather, is is a description of individual and together lives which reflect the way of Yahweh to the nations. The law is an identity marker for the people of God. The law is a reflection of life the way God intends it to be. And the law plays an important role in God's salvation plan to reveal the sinfulness of human hearts and point us to Jesus. What's the heart of God then behind the law? If the law reflects God and the way that this God wants people to live, then what kind of God does the law reflect? What kind of way does he want people to live? What do we learn about who God is through the Ten Commandments? Well, uh, a lot of the Ten Commandments, if you've been around church a while, are probably pretty familiar. Maybe they're familiar even if you haven't been around church for a while. They're one of the most famous parts of the Bible. Let's have a kind of a quick look through them and think about what kind of God we meet what kind of life he calls us to uh, as he gives the Ten Commandments. So he begins uh, with this declaration. Right? This is like the preamble to the, to the vows. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. This is a, this is a strong start from God. Notice how the word Lord uh, is, is capitalised This is how our English Bible marks the the name of God, the unique, distinctive name of the God of the Bible. This is the holy, 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 unique covenant name of God. This is I am that I am. This is that God. And that God begins with a a powerful, a spine-tingling, humbling reminder of the nature of who he is and who they are. I am God. You're not I am God who chose you. I am God who rescued you. I am the God who is making you a people. God announces who he is. 
which reminds the people who they are, and then begins the vows of this covenant. The first and second commandments in verses 7 and then in 8 to 10, they are, they're simply commands to worship only the true God and to only worship him the right way. Don't worship other gods and don't invent your own ways of worshipping me. That's what God's saying. And then the third commandment is don't misuse the name of the Lord your God. It's a bit of a tricky one to understand what it means, but the, the, the Hebrew word for misuse here is a word shav, which means to, to empty something or to make something futile. So God's saying, don't empty my name of its meaning. It's, it's wonder, it's power. As my people who carry my name, don't carry my name towards futility or emptiness. I am the Lord your God. Don't empty my name. So this third commandment is about how God's people represent him. Right? It's something bigger than just don't use swear words. Then fourth comes the Sabbath command to, to rest on every seventh day. A counter-cultural pattern of God-oriented rest for the whole nation. The whole people, every household, every individual, every citizen of Israel to rest one day out of seven, beginning Friday at sunset, ending Saturday at sunset. Curiously, this is, this is the only one of the Ten Commandments that isn't restated in the New Testament. So this, this Sabbath command, it still reflects the heart of God for his people. This is still the word of God. But as Christians, we're not obliged to the same rules about Sabbath keeping that the nation state of Israel was. I was driving through uh, Caulfield recently, which is one of the main Jewish neighbourhoods uh, in Melbourne, on a, on a Sabbath day, on a Saturday. And there were family groups uh, and groups of friends walking everywhere around the streets or riding scooters in obedience to the Sabbath laws. And it looks lovely and wholesome, right? It's a really attractive practice, as right-keeping of the law would be. But we are not covenantally bound to the restrictions of the Sabbath anymore. We're free to follow those practices if we like, but we're not obliged to in order to keep the law or please God. Then we find the remaining, the remain, remaining six commandments summed up by Jesus as love your neighbour as yourself. Honour your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony about your neighbour. You shall not cover your covet your neighbour's wife, house or land, servants or property. So what kind of society would you have if everyone obeyed and followed these commandments joyfully? It would be great. Right? This is a picture of a great life together as a community. This is a picture of respectful and honest and, and strong relationships. People often hear the Ten Commandments as, as burdens. And indeed, Jesus goes after the teachers of the law who make them into unbearably heavy burdens. But they're a picture of a good life together, 
of a community of people loving God rightly and loving one another. And we can best understand the heart of God behind the law when we hear God himself in the person of Jesus explain the law. So hear this from Matthew 22, 35 to 40. One of them, an expert in the law, tested Jesus with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And this is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. All the law and the prophets. That's, that's kind of shorthand for all the instruction of the Old Testament hangs on two commandments. Love God, love your neighbor. This is, this is, a, this is a good life. There's goodness in the law. If our lives are oriented rightly, they're oriented for for abundance and flourishing as individuals and, and together. God desires a people marked by love for him and love for one another. If you've read the Bible before, tell me, do they do it? Do they keep their wedding vows? No. No, Israel is an unfaithful spouse to God. They are unable to live out God's vision for them. God's law is a glimpse into his heart, into who he is and his desire for his people, but they don't respond to his heart. The law is not able to make people right with God because people are unable to keep it. Except for one. So let's, let's meet him. Jesus of Nazareth is the only person ever to keep the law of God. The only person ever to reflect that life that God calls people to in the giving of the law. The only one to do it perfectly. But he does it differently to how people expect. And so he's accused of not keeping the law. And here's what he says in Matthew 5, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law, or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus hasn't come to scrap the law, to to burn the books, to tear up the pages. No, he's come to fulfill them. He is their end goal. He's what they point towards. He hasn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. But what does that actually mean, right? Because if you're like me, you've been around church for a while, you've probably heard that verse lots of times, Jesus saying he's come to fulfill the law. But what does that actually, what, what does that mean? Well, Jesus fulfilled the law by living it perfectly. He kept the law. And not not just the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. 
If the law is about the heart of God, then Jesus' life perfectly reflected the heart of God in a way that no one else's ever has before. He lived the law perfectly. He also satisfied the requirements of the law for punishment of wrongdoing in his substitutionary death. After keeping the law perfectly, Jesus died on the cross, taking the punishment that you and I deserve for not keeping the law. The law given by a God of holiness and righteousness who wants holiness and who hates sin and wickedness and evil, Jesus takes the punishment that that law commands for wickedness and sin and evil. He takes it on our behalf. He satisfies the requirements of the law. And he, he supersedes the law. If the law is a, is a glimpse into God's heart, Jesus takes us deeper in. He shows us without a veil who God is, what God's like, what God wants for us. He, he achieves the purpose of the law better than the law could. Right? Like, a, like a horse and a plough is superseded by a tractor. Jesus supersedes the law. He achieves its purpose better. And he wrote it onto our hearts. Rather than being written on tablets of stone, Jesus writes the law by his spirit on our hearts, in our minds. Back in Jeremiah 31, in the Old Testament, before Jesus, God promised that a day was coming when he would make a new covenant with his people. And rather than writing this covenant on stone tablets, he would put it in their minds and write it on their hearts. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit of God living in you. And by that spirit, God has written his law, his heart, his desire for your life. He's written it on your heart. He moves his commandments from the pages of scripture into your heart by the work of his spirit. Into the the inmost being, into the deepest part of who you are. Let's test out how how Jesus does this with a couple of the commandments uh, from the 10. We'll kind of case study this a little bit here, right? So uh, here's one of the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. How does that commandment reflect the heart of God who gives it? Or reflects the heart of a God who values Fairness, who values the the created order and the marriage relationship, who values respect for one another, love for one another, honesty, contentment in what God's given. Then Jesus takes the command and he moves it from law-keeping to kingdom living, from outside adherence to inward transformation. Here's what he says. He says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. 
So Jesus is referring to the Ten Commandments, right? That's where they get that command. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Can you see Jesus fulfilling, superseding, going beyond the requirements of the law? It's no longer just law-keeping, but it's, it's kingdom living. No longer just external adherence, but inward transformation. And by his death on the cross, Jesus pays the penalty for our adultery. For our, our lived out adultery and the adultery in our hearts. He pays a penalty for our, our lust. By his resurrection, he forges a new way to be human. And by the giving of his spirit, he makes it possible, truly possible, to live the law, to live with purity. Not perfected in this life, not perfected until he's finished his work and you're with him, not perfect, but truly transformed and being transformed. He makes the way. Do you, do you see that movement from the law through Jesus and his spirit to us? That's the new covenant of, of Christ. Through Christ's redeeming work and sending of the Holy Spirit to live within us, God writes the law on our minds and our hearts. Let's try one other commandment, one other case study. You shall not murder. It's in verse 17 there. This command, what does this reflect about the heart of the God who gives the command? This reflects a God who values life, who makes every life precious with deep dignity and purpose, who is the only one with the right to give and take away life. That's the God that this law, this rule reflects. And then Jesus comes, fulfilling the law, and he takes the command and moves it from law-keeping to kingdom living, from external adherence to inward transformation. Matthew 5, 21. You have heard it said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. So again, Jesus is referring to the Ten Commandments. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. No longer just law-keeping, but kingdom living. Not on the outside, but the inside. And by his death on the cross, Jesus pays the price to pay for our anger. By his resurrection, he forges a new way to be human. By the giving of his spirit, he makes it possible, truly possible, to live with peace and grace and forgiveness. Truly transformed, not perfect until he's finished his work in you. Not perfect, but being truly transformed. Jesus fulfills the law and he writes it on our hearts. So, final question. What's the role of the law in the Christian life? This is where we started, right? This is the question that that young woman on campus was wrestling with. Do we have to follow the Ten Commandments? 
or not as a condition of our covenant relationship with God, though they still reflect God's heart for a thriving humanity and show us his desire for our lives. Not as a condition of our covenant relationship with God, though they still reflect God's heart for a thriving humanity. I really like how one scholar put it, there is covenantal discontinuity, so they're no longer the basis of our covenant relationship with God, but a moral continuity remains. They still express the moral character of God. Here's how this is shown in Romans chapter 3, verses 28 to 31. I'll put this up on the screen. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through the same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith not at all rather we uphold the law okay so there's there's lots going on there but let me try to just write a couple of really key points Uh, three kind of really key um, points from that first a person is justified that means um, made righteous before God forgiven in God's eyes apart from the works of the law. So keeping the law, keeping the Ten Commandments, can't make you right with God. That's why I had to tell this this young woman at uni. Keeping the Ten Commandments can't make you right with God. And it has to be this way, second point, because the law was given specifically for the Jewish people, for the ancient nation of Israel. The law is the condition of God's covenant with them, not of his covenant with those before them, like Abraham, who didn't have the Ten Commandments, or those after them, us, who live under a new covenant in Christ. The law is given specifically for the Jewish people for a specific period of history. So then, the third point Look at uh, verse 31, as Paul kind of lands this here. Does that mean that we then nullify? That means to cancel out the law by this faith, by knowing God through faith. No, 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 says Paul. Rather, we uphold the law. Christians, by the power of the Spirit, live out the heart of the law as we live to please God and imitate Christ by the power of the Spirit. We don't stop living God's way just because salvation is by faith. No, we live righteous lives out of thankfulness, out of an overflow of worship to the God who saved us. In James 2.26, we see the same point made really succinctly and kind of in a really biting way. Faith without works is dead. We do the right thing 
as an expression of our relationship with God, as an expression of our faith, not in order to gain or keep relationship with God. So here's the, the great comfort and, and truth. Real obedience to God is possible. Real obedience, even though imperfect, is real. It's possible because of God. Because through the work of Christ and the giving of his spirit, God has taken the law and written it on our hearts. God's spirit in you makes it possible for you to grow in your obedience to God and your effectiveness in reflecting and representing him to the world. Jesus made the way. He fulfilled the law. He satisfied it. He superseded it and he wrote it on your heart. Your obedience to the Father is made possible by Jesus Christ and is empowered by the Holy Spirit. John Piper has a really great way of expressing this. He says, the way we strive towards being obedient, holy and loving people is not by getting up in the morning and pulling the list out of our pocket. No. We get on our knees and we open ourselves to the whole counsel of God in the Bible. We saturate and shape ourselves by everything he, he has done, is doing and will do. We stake our lives in the gospel and then instead of serving the law, we serve one another in love. So, like Jesus did in his life, live out the heart of God's law, which he has written on your heart to reflect God and point the world to him. I could say to that young woman at uni, you don't have to keep the Ten Commandments for God to love you. Your relationship with God and his love for you is not based on you keeping the Ten Commandments. It's based on Jesus, who kept them perfectly, who died in your place for your failure to keep the law, and who rose from the dead to make a way for you to live out a deeper goodness than the law could give. As I explained the gospel to her, I could see something in her eyes, something of, of confusion, and something maybe of wonder or hope. That's the good news of the gospel. Why don't I thank God for that good news and then we'll pray in response to him. Thank you God uh, for the good news of Jesus, for the one who perfectly fulfilled the law and who writes it on our hearts that we might live a deeper righteousness for your praise and glory. Make us people whose lives point the world to Jesus who show who you are, who live out your vision for human flourishing and who represent you well in this world. We pray it for the glory of Jesus. Amen.